Thanks for asking me. So this picture over here um, is um, in Cape Town. That's my daughter with her friend over there. It's about two years ago. And the reason this is germane to the talk is that um, the guy, Charlie Trey, who actually described the um, uh, acute liver failure, um, used to work at uh, Kreditskir Hospital, which is like just around the corner here. So it'd be about where my forefinger is in, in this picture. And um, he also had a lot to do with bringing me to America. So that's probably another reason that, you know, this kind of all ties together. And um, this is um, one of the gardens that are uh, quite famous in, in Cape Town. So what is acute liver failure? And this is a definition that uh, Trey and Davidson, Charlie Trey and uh, Bill Davidson uh, defined in about 1968 or 70 or so. Um, but basically, it's a syndrome of severe liver impairment in the absence of pre-existing liver disease. And it's defined by the presence of hepatic encephalopathy. So the encephalopathy is the important thing that defines the diagnosis. And coagulopathy is usually present, but is not part of the definition. So most of these people have coagulopathy. The encephalopathy I'm going to get back to, but it can present very unusually. So when you're seeing somebody in the emergency room um, and they've got very high enzymes, the typical patient that we associate with uh, acute liver failure, oh, sorry, with liver failure of a chronic nature is the stuporose patient or somebody who's in a coma. But in fact, the encephalopathy of acute liver failure can actually be very different. And um, it's like the hyperammonemic syndromes, like these congenital uh, gene defects where the kids get hyperammonemia. They can actually get seizures, or they can actually be very um, hyperactive. And I remember one guy coming in uh, with acute liver failure. He was completely manic, and he was completely inappropriate, and he was swearing, and just completely just behaving out of character for him. But he certainly wasn't your usual stuporose, comatose sort of guy. So that's just something to bear in mind when you're seeing these people. So, so the key concept over here is the encephalopathy defines the condition. Um, just while I'm busy, um, it might be a good idea if I just say right at the outset, I, actually, this is a subject very near and dear to my heart. I've done a lot of work on it. But I'd actually very much like to get a conversation going if there's something that you particularly want, because I'm not sure I'm necessarily going to meet all your needs in terms of you know, what exactly you want to get out of this. So you know, please interrupt me or... The reason that acute liver failure, fulminant liver failure, is important is because the majority of these people die. It's one of these kind of ultra-emergency situations that they come in, they've got basically three or four days, and they're dead. So it, it really does need to be recognized. And, and it's, a, it's a different story completely from the situation that you're describing. That's more of a situation of acute unchronic, and that behaves very differently in terms of prognosis. And so I think I'm just going to focus on this at the moment because although it's a relatively rare condition, it's extremely important to have a good handle on it. So there are an estimated uh, 2,000 cases, and the mortality rate there, as you can see, is up to 95%. Um, so these people come in and pretty much die within a few, um, sometimes hours and sometimes days. And obviously, depending where you are, the etiology will vary. So... What I'm going to do in this kind of next uh, 40 minutes or so is just emphasize acetaminophen because it's, 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 and I'm going to show you all the data, but I'm going to keep coming back to acetaminophen, and I'm really going to go through that in quite a lot of detail because it's the most common cause that we have. 
Um, it's um, extremely important, and, and what you do in the emergency room is, in, is incredibly important in terms of determining these people's outcomes. And what I'll try and do is actually go into some detail about the pathophysiology so that with a good understanding of this, you'll actually understand exactly what the reasons are that we make certain recommendations. So these are the usual causes of uh, acute liver failure. Um, uh, viral hepatitis, uh, including A, B, and C. Um, hepatitis C is relatively uncommon, but it's certainly well described. Hepatitis Delta virus is, as you know, only present in the presence of hepatitis B. Um, Parva and adeno becoming more frequently described as a cause. Acetaminophen is by far and away the most important cause. I'm going to show you that other thing, but it could be any um, idiosyncratic drug reaction. And typically, the drug reactions tend to be a lot worse. The one thing that most of us think about, um, th that can also be an important thing to think about, is uh, when a whole bunch of people come in from a family, for example, um, Amanita phylloides or just Amanita, the variety of Amanita um, toxins, and there's a very specific syndrome that will alert you to that possibility, apart from the fact that it's usually a bunch of people coming in. Uh, heat stroke is something else I suspect you may see from time to time. Um, Wilson's disease, fatty liver of pregnancy, Reyes syndrome, those are relatively uncommon. The fatty liver of pregnancy, it's relatively easy to, I mean, one often think about fatty liver of pregnancy because it's usually in the third trimester and the pregnancy isn't an um, unusual thing. So again, just, that's just a general overview of the um, most important things. But as I say, the viral hepatitis, acetaminophen, and drugs are uh, probably the most important. And um, this is the epidemiology from uh, a, a relatively old study. And I'm going to show you later on that the drug etiology has actually increased in number because there are more and more people taking acetaminophen overdose. And to the extent now that um, the... Uh, American Association for the Study of Liver Disease has actually put out a big um, um, letter, what, whatever, um, um, actually requesting that acetaminophen is no longer made available as loose tablets. They want it in blister packs and you know reduce the people's ability to actually take large amounts of it. In my experience, autoimmune hepatitis is actually not an uncommon cause. We've actually done a number of transplants for people presenting with acute liver failure. Now, of the drugs, um, there's a whole variety. These are the most common ones. And again, um, of the non-drugs, uh, comoxiclab or augmentin is actually turning out to be one of the most important causes in recent studies of, of uh, idiosyncratic drug reactions. Um, somebody on rifampicin or isoniazid will often think about. Um, acetaminophen again, is potentiated by alcohol, and I'm going to go into that in some detail in, in a bit. But you can see there's a vast number of drugs, and all you need to remember is um, that uh, when somebody presents with acute liver failure, think of drugs. And do you know offhand, or do you remember offhand how you kind of establish the diagnosis of a drug hepatotoxicity? Basically a kind of a guilt by association thing. It's an, it's, there's no specific diagnostic thing, but it's usually drugs that have been started relatively recently before the onset of the problem. And then typically it's usually something that is associated with toxicity. So if it's, it's got a signature, and then the other things, you have to rule out other causes, and typically people should get better once you stop the drug. So those are the kind of 
associations that you look for to try and establish the diagnosis of drug toxicity. Jeff, go Well, you know, the trouble with these idiosyncratic drug reactions is they're really, really uncommon. And so you always have to do a risk-benefit analysis, but you're not going to not treat somebody with infection. It's the same reason that um, we'll use amiodarone, even though we know there's a high rate of toxicity, but you know that if you don't use it, they're going to get other problems. So it's, it's just, I, th I think the key thing about drugs is somebody comes in on a drug that's relatively new, and they've got... Uh, elevated numbers or, or jaundice, then it's, it's important to just think about that. And, and the thing about drugs is it really just depends on taking a decent history of what drugs have started recently. So um, it's one of those things that um, you just have to think about, and if it's part of your history, it'll, it'll come out. It's, it's rel relatively simple to diagnose and manage once you've thought about it. It's just a question of thinking about it. So again, we're going to go through a few of those. So um, acetaminophen toxicity, typically the people take the drug, they have acute symptoms of just the irritation of the GI tract when they've taken it, and that lasts for a couple of hours, a few hours. And then they have a latent phase, which can last between one and three days. And then they come back at that point with elevated liver numbers, typically jaundice and so forth. And um, about 15% of the people that present with overt liver injury will die. And one of the reasons that that number is relatively low uh, is because of the very effective treatment. Um, so just to give an idea of the epidemiology of this, this is a study of 548 patients from King's College. They've had this problem in the UK um, at, at high levels for um, quite a long time. But what I'd just like to point out here, of the 548 patients that were admitted, um, patients that were thought of as being relatively um, well, not meeting transplant criteria, the majority of them actually survived, although 28 patients in this group of 400 actually did die. Of the 68 patients that were listed, 44 actually got to transplant. But of the 24 patients that didn't get to transplant, only four patients survived. So you can see that once the actual criteria are established for severe liver injury from uh, acetaminophen, there's a very high mortality rate. And um, of those that are not listed, the majority died as well. And, and they may not have been listed because of social reasons. A lot of these people are suicidal, so they often don't come to transplant. But just to point out, that's a very high mortality rate. And this is the um, recent study came out last year, which showed that of all the acute liver failure cases, um, don't worry, <laughs> stay with you, baby. <laughs> um, that of all the liver failure patients, um, the, the incidence or the, the, the percentage of cases that are attributable to acetaminophen is rising. So it's um, becoming an increasingly uh, important um, uh, topic. So what I'm going to do now is just briefly go through the, the uh, physiology of acetaminophen. And the reason for doing this is I believe that if, if you have a good understanding, and I'm sure you know this very well already, but if you have a good understanding of this, it'll actually make sense as to what you should do. And I'm, I'm not sure I agree with all the recommendations that um, are uh, present in the literature. So typically, if you have a small dose of acetaminophen, 
it gets predominantly glucuronidated and sulfated and forms these metabolites which are completely non-toxic. There is another bypass pathway, kind of relatively unimportant pathway for small doses, which is the cytochrome uh, P450 or the CYP, and it's particularly the CYP2E1, which is uh, relevant in the system. Now, why do I emphasize the CYP2E1? There's a specific reason for mentioning that because it, it's important to understand that particular enzyme is induced by alcohol. That E actually stands for ethanol. Not really, but that, that's a good way of remembering it. But it does, you don't have to remember the name, but that CYP2E1 is actually induced by ethanol. So if somebody drinks, this pathway is going to become induced and you're going to get more drug. So it forms this NAPQ. And even forming NAPQ in its own right isn't necessarily going to be a problem because typically you've got enough glutathione that's going to detoxify it. And it's only if the glutathione is used up that you get your cell necrosis. So you've got to go through a number of abnormal steps in order to get to this cell death of um, uh, liver failure from acetaminophen. The important thing is that this is usually a relatively small part of the pathway that there's induction by the uh, that it's predominantly the 2E1 SIP, and that, um, so what happens in an overdose situation? Now, relatively speaking, that path hasn't actually gotten smaller. It's just that, relatively speaking, it can cope with just a certain amount, and then it becomes overwhelmed. So that still keeps going, but it isn't able to cope with the whole system, and instead, a much greater, for much greater part of, or percentage of the um, Acetaminophen goes by this pathway. And with that, you actually tend to use up your glutathione. It just can't cope anymore. You've just got a certain amount. And so you get a much greater amount of this coming through and causing cell death. So um, again, this is just uh, emphasizing that point. So acetaminophen, typically a small amount goes this way. Most of it goes that way. But um, with Increasing doses, more of it goes via the other pathway. Okay, so any questions there? I just want to make sure that it's kind of relatively simple, but it's important to understand that. Okay. Alrighty, so what happens now? Um, whoopsie. So, in terms of potentiating it, um, the 2E1, I think the most important is that. Um, Alcohol induces 2E1. Um, paradoxically, if, you, if you've been drinking acutely when you take acetaminophen, your alcohol is actually blocking this. So in fact, in the short term, that short-term use of alcohol will actually bind the 2E1 and prevent some of the metabolites forming. But typically in the long term, anybody drinks heavily. Um, the other pathway is also inhibited by fasting or by high doses. And then glutathione deficiency is also affected. So if you drink or if you've been fasting, you have less glutathione. And so all of those things will tend to um, increase the toxicity. So how do you manage it? Well, I guess the most important is, well, just to start, if you can st um, stop further absorption, and that'll be if you've got them in time, um, activated charcoal. If you want to increase your glutathione reserves, you give anastylcysteine, and this is the cornerstone of management. And then obviously if they have reached the stage of cell 
you put them in the ICU and you give them support to get through the whole thing. There's some theoretical thought about using um, some metadine if there are still high levels, but in fact, the recommendations are kind of iffy, and in fact, we can't even get some metadine in this hospital anymore. But the important thing to emphasize is this, and the earlier that's given, the better. Now, I kind of want to just make a few other points, is that one of the things that I actually kind of, I'd say personally strongly disagree with, is the use of acetaminophen levels. And, and I, I should qualify that. I think in people that don't know exactly what they're doing and are using acetaminophen, acetaminophen levels to make a decision whether or not to treat, I think that's wrong. I think it's important to have the acetaminophen levels to confirm what you're doing. But I think anybody who, who have a suspicion for acetaminophen toxicity, you should treat them first and then get levels. If you're going to delay your treatment even by an hour before you start therapy with acetaminophen, and I think this is particularly a problem in outside hospitals where over here I think you'll get your levels pretty quickly, but in other places you may, people may not. And so we often have a situation, somebody comes in, they suspect acetaminophen toxicity, they'll send away for levels, get it four hours later, and in that period they haven't given the people any treatment. So I really want to say that if, if if I had my druthers, I'd actually say just dispense with the acetaminophen levels completely because they actually get in the way more than they help. If there's a strong suspicion, and, and that's not part of the general recommendation, you know, that's kind of my own personal feeling from just saying that the real problem of getting levels and waiting before treatment to me is a much bigger problem than actually knowing what the levels were eventually. The ideal way to do it is to have a suspicion send the blood levels and start treatment immediately. And then if the levels come back, you can always stop, the, you know, then low or, you know, something shows that they have not taken significant acetaminophen, you can stop at that point. But the levels can be misleading as well. And, and, and so reason um, for saying that is, is a number of things. These, um, this is a study that was published last year, I think, in JAMA. And Essentially what they were doing here is they're giving people therapeutic doses of acetaminophen, two grams um, a, a day in total, I think. It, it, it was what we, what's written on the in package insert. And it was a study that was done really to see if there's increased toxicity associated with using T3 or just regular acetaminophen. The thing that astounded me, and I think is really important, is that even therapeutic levels of acetaminophen can give you uh, hepatotoxicity. So the message from this is that, um, you know, we've always been fixed on the, the, the sort of levels and everything else, but in fact, you can get toxicity at relatively small doses with low levels. The other thing is that, as I said, the 2E1 is induced by alcohol, so even social drinkers can actually have an increased potentiation of, of acetaminophen toxicity. And even what we think of as safe uh, therapeutic doses of acetaminophen can be potentially hepatotoxic. Now, of course, that also suggests that even people that use a lot of acetaminophen with enzyme induction can get subclinical hepatotoxicity and, and, um, with prolonged use. And this is what the um, liver looks like. Um, in essence, all this blue stuff is dead tissue, and this around the um, portal areas is, is um, viable tissue. So there's massive necrosis from acetaminophen. Clinically, this is what it looks like. Um, this is the 
silent period, so they'll have a bit of nausea, vomiting and stuff over here. Uh, 24 hours up to 36 hours later, then all of a sudden these numbers will go up massively, and then typically they'll come down again. I've noticed that um, in this particular patient, the AST levels are much higher than expected, but that was, this is shown in yellow here, and that's because that person had been a drinker as well. Um, Alkfast doesn't go up. Um, acetaminophen can be recognized by very high LDH levels, which are not typical of other conditions. So, as far as, I, as I say, so, in my opinion, when somebody comes in and there's a strong suspicion or there's a history of taking significant amount of acetaminophen, I would actually give treatment immediately, but not wait for um, blood levels. And just remember, blood levels can be misleading. Somebody who's been drinking and who's got that enzyme pathway induced to the 2E1 system can actually have um, relatively low acetaminophen levels but still have quite severe toxicity. And so the, the levels can be misleading. There used to be controversy about whether, giving, whether you should give an NSL cysteine if the person came in late. And I think that's pretty much cleared up. No matter what period after the event they come in, it's always beneficial to give the NSL cysteine. And um, there's also been some controversy about how long to give it. And um, there have been, there was one study from the King's College uh, in the early 90s which showed that if you continue giving it for a prolonged period, it's, it's helpful as well. Um, there is an intravenous form available now. I'm sure you've all been using it, right? And, and that's often preferable in somebody who's otherwise got nausea and vomiting. But in fact, in reality, there's no difference between the oral and intravenous form if the person can tolerate the oral form. The oral regimen is for a more prolonged period. It, it's uh, 70, um, 72 hours, and the intravenous form is normally given for uh, 24 hours. But they seem to be um, equivalent in terms of the, the efficacy. So let me just stop there. And so I've, I've kind of tried to, you know, I don't think it's that controversial, but I've just tried to emphasize the point that, um, you know, early treatment is really important, life saving in a condition with very high mortality. Um, I think if you're in this hospital and you're going to get your levels pretty quickly, um, but even then, I still wouldn't wait. If this is, somebody comes in and they say they've taken 50 acetaminophen tabs, you know, why not just treat them and then get your levels? And I think in that kind of situation where your suspicion is lower and you're not sure, and you know, then obviously I don't think that's going to be your high risk situation. So it's, it sounds like um, you're doing exactly what I'm advocating. You've got a strong suspicion, you treat, and if you don't, then you kind of confirm your stuff. Certainly, I think that um, if it weren't for the intolerability, it's a completely innocuous treatment. So, you know, it's easy enough if if, if it weren't um, that difficult. I think I think that the um, the thought that giving intravenously is going to shorten the hospital stay isn't necessarily true. I think these people are. I don't believe so, um, and I think the reason being that um, the cellular necrosis that's going to occur is typically there by the time you start treating, um, and so it's not 
that the anastos, you know, it's kind of really missed part of the injury that's happened. And so those people that have severe liver injury still have to go through that whole evolution. And I don't think that necessarily giving intravenously shortens that. If, if that were the case, I suspect that everything would be given intravenously, even though it were more, exp more expensive. So um, King's College criteria, this is once the patient gets really sick, um, how do you recognize somebody who's going to need a transplant? Um, and the single reading of, seven, of a pH of less than 7.3 tells you that the person has got almost a 95% likelihood of dying. Now that's not necessarily, that's after the person's been rehydrated, if they're very dehydrated and so forth, and they've got other reasons for being acidotic, but if a person is persistently acidotic with a pH of less than 7.3, that pretty much tells you that they are going to die and they need to be transplanted. Um, if they if they have a relative if a pH of greater than seven point three, they actually need three of the other criteria, all three of them, um, and that uh, um, that that table that I gave you earlier, those people that met criteria, these are the criteria they were using. So you can see in that that group that met those criteria, very high mortality rate. So four people out of twenty four on the one hand, um, that didn't get a transplant survived and I think five out of 50 something odd. So it's like 90% um, um, positive predictive value that these people will die if they meet these criteria. So idiopathic, idiosyncratic drug reactions, I guess nothing much to say. It's obviously something that you just need to think about. And as I say, the coamoxiclav, the augmentin, seems to be coming up as one of the most important causes at this point. In, in, in recent times. Um, again, Aminita, I don't spend a lot of time on this. It's a relatively uncommon thing. It's a very interesting subject. Um, for those that are interested, and I suspect that um, there's a lot more toxicity from mushrooms than simply the liver. And there's an extremely nice monograph on that by a guy called Berg um, in the last year about all the um, toxicities that you get from various mushrooms. But um, typically, um, the syndrome that you need to recognize for this is, as I said, it's usually in families. Usually the first 24 hours, these people feel terrible. They get gastroenteritis, diarrhea, nausea, vomiting. They can look like any other gastrointestinal disturbance. And then there's a silent period that lulls people into um, a sort of false sense of security. And that lasts from about uh, uh, from day two to about day three, and thereafter they present with uh, elevated liver numbers. And I suspect that um, this is typically the time that you'll start seeing them coming back again. And um, it is important to um, recognize the condition because it behaves very differently in terms of when you try and transplant them, their coagulopathy and renal failure and so forth uh, is a much greater uh, concern. The, um, the three different toxins from the, um, from the mushrooms and what they tend to do is inhibit RNA synthesis. So you tend to get a lot of abnormalities in multiple organs and um, as I say there is specific management which may be of, of, of benefit so it is important to recognize that. They never take it suicidally. It's typically people who go mushroom picking and, and like a family will eat the stuff. 
And that's why I say typically you'll see it coming in in groups. So you always see these case reports of like five people coming with liver failure or... Yeah, they do, yeah. This, this is just the phylloides, but there are a whole bunch of different aminators, and there are a whole bunch of other ones which contain similar toxins. As I say, I, I, I'll be happy to let you have that reference for the toxins, but I mean, there are all sorts of interesting toxicities associated with mushrooms. Okay, just a couple of other things to think about. Um, that um, hepatitis A is a still relatively common cause of acute liver failure. Um, and what's happening in the kind of countries that have high levels of, of um, hygiene, industrialized countries, that people are not getting exposed to hepatitis A as children. Kids that get hepatitis A, they just brush it off like they may not even get jaundice, they may not even feel sick. They can have completely asymptomatic disease, a very min minor symptomatic disease. But um, if you get hepatitis A over the age of 40, your chances are that you're going to get liver failure. And in fact, in a study from Sweden, over 40% of uh, people that contracted hepatitis A at the age of 40 or over actually got uh, severe liver injury with uh, acute liver failure. And the prognosis is obviously much worse. So another one of my um, things that I've noticed is uh, um, can be a problem diagnostically is what are the right tests to do for acute hepatitis? And um, for hepatitis A, the IgM, it's really important to get that. The total, I, the total hepatitis antibodies are not helpful in diagnosing uh, acute hepatitis. And it's not infrequent that we get a positive hepatitis A antibody, but it's the wrong kind. And we're not sure is this acute or not. And then we still have to request another IgM. So in terms of the acute stuff that you'll be seeing, the IgM is always important for HEPA, and I'm sure you know that. So this is the um, a study came out last year in hepatology, which looked at um, the uh, almost a thousand patients uh, in about 10 centers with acute liver failure. And you can see that hepatitis A formed about 3% of the cases. Um, you can see that it's got a lot of these people died, 10% died, 14 were listed for transplant, one died in the waiting list, nine were transplanted, and then of those, only four recovered. And then there were 12 spontaneous recoveries. So again, it just emphasizes that when people come in with acute hepatitis A, it's a very serious uh, condition with a high mortality rate. Okay, so hepatitis B. If, if you suspect hepatitis B, somebody comes in, um, again, what's your best diagnostic test, Jim? Is it here? The core, the core antigen. I mean, the, the core IgM. And it's kind of interesting that um, there was a study, I can't remember exactly where and when it was, some years ago, which showed that in people presenting with acute hepatitis B with filament liver failure, uh, almost 70 to 80% of them would have negative surface antigen. So if you rely on the surface antigen, it's not going to necessarily be positive. So the core IgM is your most important uh, test for that, core IgM. And obviously you think about uh, delta infection as well. Um, hepatitis C, 
um, is a, a re relatively rare cause of acute liver failure, but again, diagnostically, you just have to remember that um, the antibodies may not be positive when they present acutely, so you need to think, if you think about it, do the um, RNA. Um, hepatitis E probably doesn't have a great deal of re relevance here, although, who knows, um, there's a lot of um, the equivalent of hepatitis E in the, in the pig population of Iowa. And, you know, one just hopes that it doesn't make that uh, transition to humans where it could potentially be a very big problem here. So it's mostly seen in travelers. It's thought to be much more dangerous in pregnant women um, and, and, and have a, a much higher rate of, of, uh, of disease, um, of severe disease. A, a bunch of other um, viruses which are important if somebody comes in with herpes simplex, hepatitis is pretty much, you've got 24 hours to think about it. And most, I'm not aware of people that actually survive that. They normally present with massive um, necrosis. And um, adenoparvovirus are actually quite important as well. And then one of the other things which we have to think about in somebody presenting um, acutely is the patient who presents with vascular thrombosis, particularly Bud-Chiari syndrome. And the characteristics of that are somebody, most people that present with acute liver failure um, will actually look pretty normal. Somebody presents with Bud-Chiari syndrome, they've blocked off the hepatic veins, so the blood flow through the liver is impaired. And so you can actually think for yourself what's gonna happen. Um, so the liver's gonna get very swollen, and when that gets swollen, it's gonna be very painful, right? So these people complain of pain. So anybody comes with acute liver failure and they have tremendous pain, think about Bud Chiari. And the other thing is that um, they will develop a lot of ascites. It's uncommon in acute liver failure to develop a lot of ascites. So somebody comes in with pain and ascites and acute liver failure, think about Bud Chiari. And it can be extremely difficult to diagnose, but typically um, good imaging studies um, if, if you've thought about it, imaging studies, looking at the vessels, and uh, you can establish the diagnosis. It's also really important because it makes a difference to, you can actually treat these people with thrombolysis if they're ac acutely uh, presented with bad Chiari. Um, portal vein thrombosis can be very similar, also presents with a lot of ascites, very high enzymes. They don't have the pain, typically. And then ischemic hepatitis, that's easy because the person gives a history of usually being down or having low blood pressure or some, you know, it, it's usually again um, relatively um, obvious that somebody's had hypertension and poor perfusion of the liver, which can give you ischemic hepatitis. Um, one of the other things that we see from time to time is uh, diffuse infiltration with lymphoproliferative disorders, and these people can present very, very acutely, and it's one of those things where um, it's, it's more than just a replacement of the liver. It can also be just a tremendous cytokine release that, that causes this problem. And we've um, had a fair share of them coming through our uh, hospital. And then just a few other things. Um, Bacillus cereus um, is a bug that um, grows typically in um, starchy foods. Um, so the person who comes in who's got a history of what sounds like 
food poisoning and a few days later presents with acute liver failure, I mean, one thinks of Amanita, but certainly the other thing that can do this is the bacillus cereus. And that actually inhibits mitochondrial function and can cause severe uh, liver failure. Um, and then I suppose the other thing that um, is worth emphasizing is that ecstasy has been associated, use of ecstasy has been associated with a lot of um, um, acute liver failure. So the clinical features um, and biochemistry, I'm just going to finish up here in the next two minutes, um, are um, typically very high enzyme elevation, poor synthetic function, prolonged uh, prothrombin time. And um, so, and the one characteristic that defines acute liver failure again is encephalopathy, right? So, um, and, and there are a few kind of minor details that can help you. So what I want to just do in the last uh, few minutes is just briefly talk about the treatment. Um, and the two things that people die from in acute liver failure are uh, sepsis and cerebral edema. Um, the hepatic encephalopathy, all these other things can also cause problems. And these people are enormously sick. And as I say, you've got a few hours, a few hours to maybe two or three days to actually deal with them. So as far as the sepsis is concerned, um, there is reasonably good data that prophylactic antibiotic use, particularly for um, designed for the type of bugs that are known to be present in your particular institution, are important. It doesn't seem to affect mortality as such, but it does increase the number of people that get to transplant. Cerebral edema. Um, this is the biggest problem with most of these people. Actually, if they've gone into stage three coma, there's a very high percentage that will get cerebral edema. The mechanism of cerebral edema is very complex, and um, it's actually very interesting as well. There's dysregulation of blood flow, so there's increased blood flow. Um, there's also cytotoxic edema, so the, the, the actual astrocytes and um, neurons don't actually exclude water adequately. And then over and above that, there's also interstitial edema, where there's impairment of the blood-brain barrier. So there's a combination of things. but um, interesting, probably the most important of the three are the, um, the, the, the blood flow problems, the dysregulation of blood flow. And there's a recent treatment that's been brought forward which has been very effective and has made an enormous difference to managing these people. And do you know what that is? It's hypothermia. So somebody comes in with, with uh, cerebral edema, cool them down to 32 degrees, brings back the dysregulation, and these people actually do remarkably well. It obviously involves completely paralyzing them, you know, and, and uh, sedating them and so forth, but typically they need to be intubated anyway at that stage. We typically will um, put a belt in to measure the pressure so that we understand what we're doing. There are some risks associated with that. Um, again, I just want to em emphasize on the hepatic encephalopathy. Um, so just while we're on the cerebral edema, this You'll probably read a lot about the um, liver support devices. There's a thing called MARS, which stands for um, Modular Albumin Reperfusion something. Anyway, it's called MARS. And um, there's another one called Prometheus, which basically is the same principle, where you perfuse the blood against a membrane, and there's albumin on the other side of the membrane, and it has an exchange at that level. And there are a lot of very enthusiastic people that use these, these 
things and, and really um, um, are, are advocates for them. But at this point, none of the um, liver support devices have been shown to be that effective. Um, they may still come through, but at this point, none of them have actually got proven clinical benefit. Um, in terms of the hepatic encephalopathy, I just want to emphasize again this atypical presentation that may occur. So the person who comes in manic, even with seizures, somebody kind of behaving very, very abnormally may have hepatic encephalopathy. It's not, they, they certainly may be the confused, drowsy, stuporose kind of hepatic encephalopathy that we associate with chronic disease. But don't be caught out by the patient who has encephalopathy from high ammonia, but with the other form. And in fact, there is a high rate of seizures. A lot of these people, when they're admitted, um, they, they will be found to have seizures and um, uh, would need specific management for that. And they may not be clinically obvious. Um, there's also been a recent very helpful breakthrough with the coagulopathy. This is obviously one of the major problems, putting in lines, putting in bolts. How do you deal with that? These people do have a tendency to bleed. And so, although it costs a lot of money, the recombinant factor 7A has been very helpful. Um, the majority of, a high percentage of patients will get pancreatitis. It's not really understood why. I suspect it's got a whole bunch of reasons, but um, one needs to watch out for that. Hypoglycemia is something we always think about, but in fact, the majority of patients, probably 70%, will actually have problems with increased glucose. And there is a reason for that. I'm just not sure. I can't remember at the point what it, what it is. But so a small percentage of people will have hypoglycemia and require a specific um, management for that. And um, there have been some studies recently that show that the transport of glucose into the brain in the presence of cerebral edema is diminished. And so it's quite important to actually try and maintain high blood glucose levels in these people. And then for the rest, you actually treat the other complications. And the one piece of management that we haven't, that I haven't emphasized yet, and which obviously probably doesn't, um, I mean, the people are here at this hospital, this probably doesn't bear as much emphasis as in somebody who's practicing elsewhere. But somebody comes in with acute liver failure, the management of choice is liver transplantation. That's the only thing that's going to um, help some of these people to survive. So if you're at a center, if you finished your training here or move on to some other center, it has to be that somebody comes in like that, they have to be recognized and they should be transferred immediately to a transplant center because that's the only chance that these, some of these people have to survive. And remember, it's a very narrow window. You've got to get your workup done. You've got to get the person listed. Once they're listed, you've got to get the liver. And that whole process can take 24, 48 hours. And if you haven't got that, you know, the whole psychosocial workup, everything has to be taken. So there's no real time to, okay, we'll do it today and we'll try and get this done tomorrow. You've literally got to get it all done within hours of the person presenting. So treatment, um, NSL cysteine, in fact, that's probably the only specific treatment for acute, for autoimmune disease. Um, you can use uh, steroids. It's essentially um, supportive measures, hypothermia, and so forth. And this over here is absolutely essential, is early assessment uh, of the need for transplantation. So cerebral edema, oh, excuse me. 
Um, the problem about deciding whether a person needs a transplant or not is also often one of the difficult decisions that are faced. And um, it, it obviously does depend on the severity. So there have been a variety of uh, prognostic scores. And I've already given this one earlier. But you see the pH less than 7.3 or all three of the above, grade three or four encephalopathy, uh, elevated creatinine or uh, PT greater than 100 seconds. Uh, INR of 6.7 is the equivalent. And if it's not a cinnaminophen, then these are the criteria that are used. So if it's very prolonged INR or um, the age range, um, idiosyncratic um, etiology, a prolonged interval to jaundice onset, and um, high bilirubin or prothrombin And we've already spoken about that. The survival in transplantation uh, is pretty good at 65%, as much less. Transplant survival in, at this university, in, on average, is 97% to 98% uh, one-year survival. And obviously, that survival curve is pretty flat. So um, this 80% for non-fulminate liver disease is not true over here. We're much better than that. Um, but on average, the fulminant um, liver failure survival is a little bit less because these people are often very sick. And you know there have been horrors where you actually transplant somebody and they're brain dead. So you, kind of got to live in a, a branded person. And, and that obviously is one of those things where they're so sick that you just don't have time. You just got to go, go ahead and, and deal with these things. Um, sometimes you get suboptimal organs as well. And that brings us back to Cape Town. That's the end of the story. Thank you very much. <laughs>